welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marchalero. And this week, my guest is a fascinating fellow, Dr. Matthew Stanley, a professor at New York University. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You are a podcaster yourself, and you are interested in just about everything I could imagine I'm myself interested in. <laughs> I can't wait to get into this show. Let me give you an introduction to the listeners. You are a teacher and researcher in the history of philosophy and science. You hold degrees in astronomy, religion, physics, and the history of science, and you're interested in the connections between science and the wider culture. Your PhD is from Harvard in the history of science, and you are currently a professor at New York University. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's a good life. I want to talk to you about how you got started on that, because that's a broad range of interest. Most people only have time in their life for theology or religion or history, but you managed to synthesize all. <laughs> Tell me about the evolution of that uh, integration of those, these three magnificent areas. Sure. So I started off uh, as an undergraduate studying um, science and engineering. Uh, I used to build lasers was my thing. And uh, through a, a sort of strange series of um, uh, circumstances, I took a course in philosophy of religion um, and found it really compelling. I particularly like the way they sort of thought about problems. Um, so I ended up double majoring in physics uh, and religion. Um, and I still thought I was going to be an engineer. I still wanted to build lasers and I was just doing the humanities and philosophy for fun on the side. But I gradually found that the, the way of thinking that the humanities had taught me sort of infected the way I was thinking about my science, too. So I started asking questions in the lab that could not easily be answered in the lab. And it took me a little while to discover that history and philosophy were the places where I could both ask and answer those sorts of questions. Cool. So science tells us the what, and religion maybe tells us some of the why yeah sometimes a way to look at it yeah um and one of the things i was particularly interested in is uh taking a historical approach to thinking about science and religion how did you have time for all that well um that's a good question in (laughs) retrospect i have a hard time saying um i should say a big part of it was i had really gifted teachers um Mm. that were very good at uh at showing me how to bring together my diverse interests in a productive way and i'm very grateful to them for that do you want to name names Oh, sure. You know, my uh, PhD advisor, Peter Gallison, um, as an undergraduate, Douglas Brooks and Bill Green at the University of Rochester, um, all folks who uh, I'm still trying to emulate today. What about um, scientists who became philosophers and theologians like Dr. John Polkinghorne, one of my favorites? Are you familiar with him? Yeah, yes. I had the chance to meet him um, oh, so several jealous. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> he is a theoretical, he was a theoretical physicist turned Anglican priest. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, when scientists talk about religion, they usually get stuff wrong. And when theologians talk about science, they usually get a lot of stuff wrong. But if you have a PhD in theoretical physics and you turn into a priest, you kind of have perspectives on both and you can speak authoritatively on the integration. That's right. And one of the things I find interesting about taking a a historical perspective on these questions is 
to, to realize that people like uh, Dr. Polkinghorne used to be typical. That is, it used to be normal for a scientist to be well-trained in things like philosophy and religion. Um, it's a fairly modern innovation. That, Natural science. We've yeah, lost right. that. Um, so someone like James Clerk Maxwell would have called himself uh, a natural philosopher, right? By which right. he was trying to indicate that he is interested in these very broad issues. Yeah, yeah. We've lost that. I think we get too focused on the pressures of uh, publication and grants and the fanfare of academic life. And uh, it's hard to become uh, philosophical and, and spiritual in your approach to science. And, and then you get some pushback, too, don't you? Yep, that's right. You get you definitely get pushback. It's, it's not expected and often frowned upon. Um, and in sort of the mechanism of academia, it's not rewarded. That is, if you spend time thinking about those issues, you don't get much credit for it unless you're in an mm. unusual position like I have. How did you achieve that? Um, uh, dumb luck, good networking, <laughs> persistence, I think. So, you know, I, I taught in science departments and I've taught in history departments, um, but it wasn't until I landed where I am now, which is the, the Gallatin School at NYU, uh, that I was really able to uh, sort of be interdisciplinary in, in a deep sort of way and have my colleagues appreciate that. Tell me about the Gallatin School. That was new to me when I read, first yeah. read about you at New York University. Uh, it's a fascinating place. So it's a, a school within um, NYU, and it's the School of Individualized Study. So students come here, mostly undergraduates, who have something they want to study that doesn't fit well into traditional disciplinary divisions. So sometimes that means they've got multiple interests that they want to bring together. So say I have a student who's interested in physics and philosophy, and they want to combine them. Or a student who's interested in something that just isn't well represented in normal departments like um, international development, say. So they take classes from the other departments, from the physics department and philosophy department, and then you help them and you nurture them and, and guide them through the integration of this program? That's exactly right. So we teach them interdisciplinary seminars, uh, give them the tools to pull together their various interests. What about job prospects? Well, you know, it's uh, uh, every parent is very concerned about that on the first day of orientation, as you might imagine, <laughs> um, because uh, because the concern is that the students will graduate with their BA in individualized study and that that won't mean anything to employers. Yeah. But one of the things that uh, – we make our students do is think deeply about why they're studying what they're studying and what the significance of that is. So by the time they graduate, they're actually really good at explaining uh, why it's important to study what they're interested in. Um, so we actually put them out into the world really well prepared to go into a job interview uh, and explain how their thesis on, say, you know, epistemology of physics um, sets them up well to be a manager at Google or whatnot. Um, and they do very well. I was listening to a podcast uh, at uh, LinkedIn's um, Hello Monday the other day with Angela Ahrens, Apple's former senior vice president of retail. And she talked about how she never really wanted to have a job. She wanted to live her fantasy. She wanted to live and breathe her work. She wanted her career ambition and her satisfying work in life to be integral to her being so that mm -hmm. it was a natural thing for her to do rather than just show up for a nine-to-five job. Yeah, that's right. 
Um, and that's what a lot of my students crave as well. Uh, and it takes some work. And I should say, I remember when I was in that position too, right? I was interested in all these different things and none of my career options seemed to really f- let me do those things the way I wanted. Um, and it took a lot of time and effort to, to get there. One of the things that I've noticed in my studies is that there is this popular public culture that science and religion are at war with each other. And I think that's done for political reasons, for gain, for money, for other philosophical reasons. But I've met a lot of scientists who've been on the show who are very well informed about the integration of science and religion. We've had this discussion uh, with uh, some scientists, and it pleases me greatly to uh, explore that subject because done right by somebody like John Polkinghorne or alternatively Alistair McGrath, an Irish scientist turned philosopher, Mm -hmm. um, it's a very fascinating discussion, a very strong theological basis. The Bible is not a science textbook. And we go from there trying to figure out how the two worlds mesh with each other. Can mm-hmm. you briefly give us some of your thoughts on this without yeah, so I think spending as, the rest of the show on it? As, as, as you say, um, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. And I think one of the most important misconceptions is that most people have a, a very narrow view of what religion means. So if you ask most scientists – what do you mean by religion? Um, they'll describe something that sounds like American Protestant fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that group uh, wields a lot of political and social power in the United States, um, they they sort of present themselves as the natural way it's to be religious. religious. Right. Exactly. Um, But that's not the case. Right. It's not the case that religion has to be about literal reading of scriptures and social conservatism. Um, Religion is not just uh, a series of stories, ideas. It also involves practices, um, uh, ways of doing things. It involves communities, ways of interacting with other people. Uh, Even if you do want to emphasize things like scripture, uh, there's many different ways to read scripture. Right. Right from the very start. It was very clear um, to the the, say the, the church fathers, uh, that reading the Bible is a complicated thing uh, and should not be taken. You can't um, read the Bible without a guidebook. Exactly, right? I mean, yeah, this is, uh, like I said, they, this was very clear from the start. Yeah. So this, this, this sense that, um, like I said, modern American Protestant fundamentalism is the only kind of religion, um, I think is really dangerous uh, and has, has caused a great deal of trouble. It has, it has. So your, one of your other specialties is the history of science. Many physicists don't care much about science. I know I never did when I was a young physics student. Yes. Why should scientists and physicists study history and the history of science? Well, you know, it's funny. I wrote an article for Physics Today with uh, that exact title, Why Should Physicists Study History? So if you Google that, you can turn it up, some of the uh, some of the detailed arguments. But I think there's um, a few important things that, that you get as a scientist from studying the history of science. One of them is the realization uh, that science is a complicated thing that doesn't always go the way it's supposed to. Right. So we we learn about the sort of cartoon scientific method um, of you do this and then you do this and then you do this and then you get your answer. And it doesn't take much time in the lab to realize that that actually isn't 
the way it happens, right? Um, so it's more useful, I think, to look at how science actually operates. Um, that is, what are the actual processes by which scientists in the past have made their discoveries and come to the conclusions. And it turns, I think one of the important lessons there is that you need a real diversity of thought and background. That is, there's no e one easy way to solve a problem. Um, you should gather insights and ideas from all sorts of different people uh, and all sorts of different disciplines. Uh, it's um, because we tell the story of a lot of these things as, you know, singular genius, somebody has a flash of insight, but actually it was that they spent years working on problem X before they realized that they needed an insight from a totally different discipline uh, to come back uh, and turn it into problem Y. Richard Feynman tells this story about his father who took him out and they went exploring, and and he would teach young Richard the names of the trees and the birds. And they would point out, just because you know the name of something doesn't mean you understand it. You can yes. point to a tree and say, you know, that's a, that's a robin. But mm -hmm. understanding what a robin is is a whole other thing. And yeah, that's, that's right. part of that's that's part of your evolution and growth as a as a scientist. Um, Feynman would say that if he, he didn't understand something really, really fundamentally, he didn't feel comfortable teaching it. Yeah, and I think that's uh, um, I, I quite agree with that. And one of the things I, I find again valuable about studying the history is that if you really want to understand the concepts that are used in science, um, it's almost always the case that you need to explore where that concept came from. Um, we're very good at deleting the history that leads up to the present. Uh, but if you really want to understand things, uh, it's quite important. Yeah, I agree. Well, we've come to the end of the first segment of the show. In the second half of the show, I want to ask you about some of the books that you've written and some of the other ideas that are on my list of things to ask you about. So, uh, folks, we need to take a commercial break. I'm chatting with Dr. Matt Stanley at New York University. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hi, this is John Martellaire with the Mac Observer. Today, our sponsor is Keeps. Losing hair is not good, and two out of three guys will experience hair loss by the time they're 35. I want to introduce you to Keeps, the easiest and most affordable way to keep the hair you have. These FDA-approved products used to cost so much, but now thanks to Keeps, they're finally inexpensive and easy to get. Starting at just $10 a month, you'll never have to worry about hair loss again. Key advantages? First, getting started with Keeps is so easy. Sign up takes less than five minutes in the privacy of your home. Just answer a few questions, snap some photos of your hair. Step two, a licensed physician will review your information online and recommend the right treatment for you. Then it's shipped discreetly right to your door every three months. Three, Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Some of you already have tried them, but you've probably never gotten them for this low price. Keeps is only $10 to $35 a month. Plus, now you can get your first month free. That's a good deal for getting to keep your hair. To receive your first month treatment for free, go to keeps.com BGM. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash BGM. And thanks, Keeps, for being our sponsor. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm chatting with Dr. Matt Stanley. So in 2014, you published an interesting title book, Huxley's Church and Maxwell's Demon. It's a glorious yeah. title. 
<laughs> and explores the complex relationship between science and religion in history. Mm-hmm. How has, if I get the, if I get this right, how has religion influenced the history of science? Oh, well, there's a lot of different stories uh, you might tell. So uh, I think one of, one of the things I'm particularly interested in is what happens when a scientist has their own religious beliefs uh, and practices and ideas, and how does that shape the way they think about uh, their scientific work and their scientific conclusions. Um, so for instance, Isaac Newton was a deeply religious man, which is something we, we forget a lot, uh, and was very comfortable using theological and religious arguments to try and understand the, the physical world around him. Uh, and he sort of set the um, an example for that. That is that most scientists were comfortable doing those sorts of arguments for a couple of hundred years. Uh, and then my book is about when that changed, which is sort of the uh, late part of the 19th century. So how did it come to be that? Is that because uh, the, the religious yeah. part went overboard and tried to assert things that couldn't be proven? And so science said, we're washing our hands of that. Well, there's a couple of different things that's going on. I mean, one of the things that happens is that this that era is also the birth of that American fundamentalism that we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a religious group that explicitly pushed themselves away from science, uh, which was quite different than how religious organizations thought about science earlier. Um, but it's also the era of professionalization within science. So before then, it was very hard to have a job as a scientist that wasn't a, that wasn't a thing, right? <laughs> there, there might have been half a dozen uh, professorships um, for science uh, in the United States, but uh, generally it was rich people spending their spare time doing science. And that comes to change, say, the 1870s or so, uh, and scientist becomes a profession. And one of the things you do when you uh, create a new profession is you create boundaries around that. That is, how do you know that the doctor you're talking to is a professional doctor? And you say, well, they they dress this way and they have degrees <laughs> from this sort of place and they, oh, they talk yeah. in this way, right? Talk to talk, um, yeah. And scientists uh, have to learn how to do that sort of as a community. They invent those sorts of processes in the 1870s. And one of the ways they come to define their profession is uh, not talking about religious things. So it's not that there's a deep philosophical reason, um, but rather a sort of a professional convenience, uh, a, a way of marking off your part of the university from the theologians. That brings up an interesting point. When you talk about science and religion uh, as a secondary thing in some of your classes, Mm -hmm. do you find your students eager to argue with you about that synthesis or do you find them saying, tell me more, tell me more, teach us Um, about the integration? it, uh, It varies quite a bit. I should say, um, uh, largely shaped by the background of the individual students. But even, you know, the, uh, the students who were raised in religious environments versus the students who think of themselves as, as having an anti-religious perspective um, uh, essentially have the same biases, uh, which is they're reluctant to, uh, to think about close connections between science and religion. Uh, and But one of the nice things I can do is I can just give them an excerpt from Isaac Newton's writings and say, let's try to make sense of this. 
uh, and just the, uh, the the kind of empirical confrontation with the fact that a good scientist can also have strong religious thoughts um, uh, really and I find that they are very receptive to that that is the, the the kind of facts on the ground really matter to them my experience as a young physics student was that if you were exhibiting any religious perspectives and tendencies you weren't a logical thinker based on facts because the People who attack scientists for being religious are focused on a very simpleton idea I mentioned in the first half of the show that scientists who try to talk about religion and don't know much about it often get things wrong. And so their their reaction to the total uh, synthesis and, and philosophy of science and religion is very immature. And all I can do is cherry-pick a simple idea. Well, if you're a spiritual physicist, you must not be very logical because you believe in things that can't be seen. Mm -hmm. But but scientists believe in things that they can't see either. Yes, that's right. In fact, I teach a whole class on how scientists talk about things they can't see. I want to ask you about that. Um, Tell me about that class. uh, I call it the seen and unseen in science. And it's uh, it's an exercise, sort of half about, as the name suggests, half what scientists mean when they say they've seen something, mm-hmm. um, and half what they mean uh, when they're talking about something they can't see. How do you make logical arguments about something like that? Um, because it turns out that seeing in science is uh, almost always a complicated thing. So, you know, if you look at the beautiful pictures of the Eagle Nebula or something like that, there's this sense that if you looked in the right part of the sky, you would see something that looked like that. But that's almost never true, right? The, the beautiful black hole images that uh, got all that publicity a few weeks back uh, were spectacular and amazing. So we say things like, I am looking at a black hole event horizon. But of course, you're not. Um, you're looking at a highly constructed and, you know, many layers inferred images, mm-hmm. image. Um, and it's a very good image. And you have very good reasons for trusting that image. But it's not simple sight. And I think it's important to understand that uh, most, of, most of the interesting things in science are not things you can easily see or even easily demonstrate, uh, but require a pretty sophisticated amount of thought and consideration. I mean, even something super simple like uh, the Earth goes around the sun, right? That's not something that you can easily see, even though we all think that's true, or at least many of us think it's true. Um, (laughs) And I find that uh, most people nowadays, actually often even many scientists, are not very good at understanding how that inferential knowledge works. Yeah, that was what I wanted to talk to you about next. So there are these sophisticated concepts that take years to master, and scientists have to be able to convey ideas in a simple way. That's the origin of Fred Hoyle's Big Bang idea, something something simple, realizable, communicable. Um, Scientists don't seem to be doing a very good job these days in taking complex ideas like climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, or astrophysics and putting them in terms that people can understand because it requires some context, some experience that people don't have. That's right. And it's something that we don't train scientists to do, right? Again, part of, part of the, the consequence of professionalization is that you don't take classes in things like public communication if you're studying physics. Right. But maybe it would be a pretty good idea. There are only a few Neil deGrasse Tysons and Carl Sagan's. That's right. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's because we're rely we, we're relying on them to produce themselves, right? Those were extraordinary people that went out uh, and made a new kind of scientific career. But it would be nice if we could train 
young science students uh, in some of those skills. So it doesn't require an extraordinary person, uh, but anyone can do it. Do you teach that kind of thing? I do my best, yeah. What What are some of the concepts that uh, would, would lead to a better understanding by scientists about how to communicate? Well, um, I mean, this, this is, I should say this is true about most kinds of technical fields. Um, drop the jargon. Uh, that's a, a very perilous thing. Um, and then split up complicated ideas into simpler ideas as much as possible. There's always this sort of temptation to jump right to the good stuff. And this is also where I think a historical perspective is very helpful. That is, if you tell a story about how a concept came about, people internalize it um, in a much stronger way than if you just tell them about the concept. Because people like stories. They like hearing about the people involved in the process. They like hearing about people's screw-ups and mistakes and how they made these sudden leaps of logic. Um, and that that burns it into people's brains in a way that just talking about the concept itself doesn't. Uh, those aha moments. Those are great yeah. those are great stories for all young scientists. It's inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. So um You've written a book recently. It's just about ready to be published, uh, Einstein's War, How Relatively yeah. Triumphed Among Vicious Nationalism of World War I. I sense that there are a lot of books written about Einstein, but this one takes a different slant, has to have an angle to it. Tell me, yeah. about, tell me about how you've brought history and politics into this. Sure. So one of the things um, uh, that you often get with Einstein is you say there's a lot written on him, but usually you get either the young heroic Einstein you know, fighting against the establishment um, or the elderly sage-like Einstein, right? the sort of repository of all wisdom. Um, but Einstein does most of his important work when he's in his early 30s. Right? He's not famous yet. He's not uh, well known. Um, quantum, his work in quantum mechanics is sort of what has earned him his reputation, but no one really knows what relativity is or how to think about it. So this is the the, the story of, uh, on one hand, how Einstein becomes famous. That is how he goes from a scientist of no particular significance to being the most famous person in the world. And then on the other hand, it's Sir Arthur Eddington played a role in that. That's right. Yeah. So the, um, the on the other hand, the story is how Einstein doesn't really do that himself, but rather it's other people he's involved with. And as you mentioned, this uh, British astronomer named Arthur Eddington um, and the, the how it is that Einstein and Eddington come together is not at all obvious. But the answer is World War One. So the Great War puts these very specific pressures on the practice of science. Um, Einstein is under blockade. Um, Eddington is a pacifist in a time of tremendous nationalism, and they manage to find each other. And the theory of relativity becomes not just a, a scientific theory, but kind of a, a, a tool for internationalism and pacifists to, to demonstrate how science can rise above the, uh, the terrible features of the war. The Eclipse Expeditions kind of made the head, headlines and kind of sealed the... <laughs> The scientific side of Einstein's relativity, didn't it? 
Yeah, this is kind of an amazing thing. So Einstein makes this prediction uh, it's through his theory of general relativity that light would be bent as it passes the sun. And you can only measure this at a solar eclipse, so it's very difficult to do. And as I mentioned, during the war, Einstein is blockaded in Germany, so he can't do any of this. And there's just a trickle of information out, and Eddington in Britain hears about this and decides that he's going to go do that test. So he sets up uh, literally a globe-spanning expedition to go build an observatory uh, on a little island off the west coast of Africa so that he can take photos of the sun during the six minutes of a total eclipse. And it's those results that come back from that. Um, and particularly, I should say, Eddington's skill in talking to the public about Einstein and relativity um, that makes Einstein a celebrity almost overnight. I want to explain how this works. You photograph the sky in an area where the sun's going to be in six months, and so you have a plate, a photographic plate of the stars and their relationships to each other. Six months later, during the eclipse, you photograph the sky with the sun in eclipse mode, and now you see a new configuration of the stars where the, the angle of light is bent, and so the stars don't appear at the same position in the sky. Yeah. So that's how that works. I've that's always right. been fascinated by that. It's an amazing thing. As the New York Times put it, they said the lights are askew in the heavens. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a tiny little effect, but very Seconds clearly measurable. Seconds yep, of arc. That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, but astronomers were very good at measuring seconds of arc, and it just takes a few months of calculations to turn them into usable results. Okay, so we only have a few minutes left. I have a couple of really good questions, some jackpot questions to ask you. Mm -hmm. um, I see science all around me, everywhere. Astronomers, climate scientists, medical researchers, NASA, the aerospace industry, which I worked in, automotive tech like Tesla, Silicon Valley, we know Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft. So all those companies depend on science and technology. It's the core of our economy. Why is there a feeling in the U.S. that we're anti-science? Are the, are the small squeaky wheels getting out of proportion here? Um, I think there is a squeaky wheel issue, but I think there's actually a deeper problem, which is that essentially right from the very start, um, the United States sort of as a society has had a deep strain of anti-elitism and anti-intellectualism um, in it. Where does that come and from? Well, I think that's a more complicated question. You'd need to get a, one of my American history friends in uh, on the podcast to answer that. Uh, I think partially it comes from the story we tell ourselves about the founding of the nation, right? That we're scrappy rebels fighting against aristocrats. Uh, and that, uh, and we've sort of generalized that to we don't need anyone to tell us what to do. Mm. Um, and you can see that, I think, throughout the history of the United States. And I think we happen to be in a particularly anti-expert um, mode right now. And unfortunately, I think uh, one of the major effects of the internet and social media has been to magnify that, uh, this sort of suspicion of expertise, uh, this sense that anyone can be equal to an expert on something. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from people not really understanding how these sort of, for instance, scientific inferences that we were talking about earlier uh, actually work. That is, I think, a deeper familiarity with what it is that scientific ex experts do um, would make it a lot e – would mean that people would take them more seriously too. I think it's hard to distinguish between those people who are accomplished and those people who are pretenders too. 
Yep. I mean, you can put on a suit and tie and give yourself an honorary doctorate and sit on Good Morning America and talk about this and that, but you're not really one of the accomplished scientists, and people don't know how to distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. And they all wear suits, they all use the lingo, they all That's use right. confusing <laughs> language. They all seem erudite and sophisticated. But what we haven't really learned as a society how to distinguish between the players and the actors. That's right. And that's because it's hard, right? I mean, we call that in, in academia, we call this teaching critical thinking, right? How do you actually process someone's ideas and decide whether or not they've made a good argument or a convincing case or something. Um, And that's hard to do. And it takes some time. uh, And not everyone is interested in learning how to do that. Tell me about your science podcast. What the if? Ah, this is a lot of fun. So my friend Philip Shane and I do this uh, once a week or so. And what we do is we we take some scientific concept or fact about the world and we change it. So it might be, uh, what if there was no gravity? Mm. Or what if you could breathe in a vacuum? Or what if ice Uh, didn't freeze the way it freezes? Exactly, right? So we try to make, uh, the the game is, we try to make the smallest change we can in reality. And then we pursue the consequences of that relentlessly. And we end up in, very often, some totally new kind of universe. (laughs) And, And the idea is that along the way, as we explore those consequences, we learn some science because we're, we're thinking about the consequences of scientific ideas and how it ties into our everyday lives. Are you familiar with Dr. Kiki Sanford and This Week in Science? Uh, yes, we had uh, uh, Dr. Kiki on as a guest uh, a couple of months ago. Isn't she delightful? She is terrific. And I think I'll be appearing on her show in a couple of weeks as well. I'm glad you two know each other. I've had her on my show about five or six times. Oh, great. She's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So I have time for one more jackpot question. I think I'm going to spring this on you. I think you are probably one of the few people who's qualified to answer this. <laughs> I have read here and there in my Scientific American readings that there may be some suspected relationship between our consciousness and quantum mechanics. Ah, yes. Um, This goes back a long way. In fact, it goes back to Arthur Eddington. Um, After Eddington uh, uh, was done with relativity, he spent a lot of time trying to solve problems uh, like free will, for instance, because he he was a deeply religious man and was concerned about the nature of uh, what we might call the soul. And determinism. Um, Exactly, right. Uh, so, so it so happens that, um, say, consciousness and quantum mechanics share a number of odd features, things like indeterminism, non-locality. So uh, there, there's sort of a hope that quantum physics might explain what's going on in terms of consciousness or vice versa. Um, and this idea has never really gone away, but it has never really become mainstream either. Uh, rather so it's sort tough of to been, tackle. Exactly, right? So it's been kind of hovering at the edge of both the science of consciousness and quantum physics um, for, I guess, nearly 100 years now, actually. Uh, And one of the problems that comes up is that people who are experts in quantum physics are typically not experts in consciousness uh, and vice versa. So you get this problem where someone can speak authoritatively on one half of the problem, um, but not the other. So again, this is sort of a a peril of uh, specialization. So we might need to, to await uh, our Carl Sagan, who can really engage with both half of, halves or, of that. Or one of your students who integrates the two thoughts and exactly. comes yeah. up with a solution in both areas. Yeah. 
Well, we have to come to a close. We're out of time. Okay. It's been a fabulous discussion. Thank you, Thank for, you for having me. me. This has been terrific. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. Uh, well, so listen to What the If uh, once a week. It's available on um, uh, Stitcher and all the various podcasting tools. Uh, Whattheif.com. You can send us suggestions for things we can if. Um, uh, you're also welcome to email me if you're so inclined. I'm, I'm matt.stanley at nyu.edu. Uh, and uh, try to pick up a copy of Einstein's War. It'll be coming out on May 21st. Um, I'll also be doing an Ask Me Anything on Reddit. Uh, on May 16th at 3 o'clock. So you can come uh, ask me questions there. Great. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show. I'm really glad you came by and uh, enjoyed our discussion with Dr. Matt Stanley of NYU University. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. See you next week. Mm-hmm.